This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about the money, boys! Here we go again. Jojo Betzler, 10 years old. Today, you become a man. Hey guys, and welcome back to this special episode of our Franchise Detours, uh, where we take a quick break from covering franchise films uh, to talk about just any old movie we please. I'm your host, Gabe Green, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, James Hamrick. What's up, man? Oh, nothing much. Still, uh, you know, it, social distancing is in full swing. Um, I am an essential employee, so still going to work. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, everything's going pretty good here so far. Yeah, pretty, you know, same here. N- nothing. Honestly, my life hasn't changed at all. Still pretty much doing the same work. Uh, so that's good. Uh, yeah. Uh, so today uh, we're going to be talking about a little movie called Jojo Rabbit that came out last year. And uh, we both really, really liked it. And we want to talk about it. And uh, yeah, so with this uh, franchise detours thing, we're just going to you know, but either between franchises or if we find a nice little break in a long franchise and we want to talk about, there's another movie we want to talk about. We'll just, you know, pick, take a week off and talk about that. And, uh, yeah, just, you know, a lot of movies out there, not all franchises. So sometimes, sometimes we want to talk about something different. And this week, uh, we, you know, we just finished the toy story series and we're going to talk about Jojo rabbit. Um, before we move back, I guess back what into the star Wars series or either that or men in black. There's a bunch of them out there. Uh, yeah, so that's what we're going to be talking about this week. Um, but before we talk about that, I want to ask you guys, uh, if you enjoy the show, please uh, take a moment to go over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review and subscribe while you're at it. Uh, it be very helpful, and we would be very, very uh, grateful to you. And since we're not going to be doing our normal franchise fatigue structure, I thought it'd be fun to bring back the uh, the recent films uh, discussion that we did way back, what, like 80 episodes ago on <laughs> Underrated? been 84 years yeah we stopped doing that in franchise because it took a, a lot of time since we're not going to do the whole behind the scenes story we thought we'd bring that back for the uh, the detour episodes um so james what have you seen in the last week okay so i have been on a movie binge it's you know not to not to make light of everything going on but if you know, this is this is silver lining of a, of a bad situation but i've i've been watching a lot lately and it's been pretty fantastic um, so I showed uh, some friends the Seventh Seal. Uh, it's still amazing, and that really kind of kickstarted me on this really pretentious foreign film, like '60s '70s art house binge. Uh, let me tell you what it has been great. So then I watched, uh, and the Seventh Seals is a 1950s Swedish film, and then I watched a 1970s Russian film uh, called Solaris, which is pretty fantastic. Um, very, very Kubrick feeling as some, uh, and I say that only having seen The Shining, but one is a horror, the other is a sci-fi, but they both feel very similarly in how they, they're very similar in how they're directed, just very slow, quiet, pulling out sound and then just injecting weird, it, I don't know, it, it, they feel very... The, the Seventh Seal is horror? No, sorry, this is Solaris. Um... Compared oh, okay. to The Shining, oh yeah, but it's it was it was still a it was amazing though. And then I watched uh, the Four Hundred Blows, which is uh, Francois Truffaut or Francois. I'm probably I'm gonna lose any bit of pretentious credentials I have just by mispronouncing all of these names. Um, 
what what I really loved about the four hundred blows though is this this gets when you look it up it gets put in like the nineteen sixties French new wave art house kind of genre. But then I watched it and I'm like, this is this is just a coming of age story that has very like maybe you know it, maybe it was labeled as such because it was just unconventional style back then. But now I'm watching I'm like this is. I mean, it's kind of a day in the life, no no real forward momentum exactly. Uh, but it, it gave me just similar vibes as something like Sing Street. Uh, so I, I think this is one where just anybody, like if you just like, you know, coming of age stories, uh, modern or old, I, I feel like this is something that a lot of people would really enjoy. And then I watched for the first time The Social Network. Uh, I'm a a huge David Fincher fan and uh I was also really excited. I think this is the first uh Sorkin written film I I think I've seen um and it did not disappoint at all this is some of the most just scene to scene some of the most amazing dialogue ever and Eisenberg is obviously amazing uh, I really thought Garfield was also just super good uh, so that Always. ended up living up to the hype uh after you that you need to watch Steve Jobs Yes, I really want to watch that. I've just seen a handful of scenes, and that's like I don't need any more trailers. I don't. I don't need to watch anything. Like I'm, I'm sold on this film entirely. It has the most glorious dialogue you'll ever hear, and Michael Fassbender. So yep, and that's exactly what what sold me on it. I was like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. Then I watched uh, Michael Mann's the or not the Heat, very different movie, just Heat. Um, I. Before this, all I had seen from him was Public Enemies, and I wasn't the biggest fan of that. I, the The whole weird documentary style filmmaking, I it felt very, it felt at odds with the tone and the time period. Like it just, it was an experiment that I don't think should have gone as far as it did. That should have been an idea that was like, <laughs> okay, this isn't working. But uh, so I thought the movie was okay, but I really loved Heat. Um, I really love like that style of action you know like the the nolan style the modern bond style like it's it's very very similar to like something like fallout as well just this clean cold uh very like gritty and real feeling uh even if it is kind of exaggerated there's just something about that tone that i really really love and and i've also become a huge fan of pacino and de niro during my scorsese binge and so i seeing those two together was really great uh, having just come off of the Irishman it's cool to see them as younger guys together uh, after that I watched eight and a half have you seen a collateral I have not that's the next on my list though because usually whenever I hear people talk about Michael Mann best is always split in some way between heat and collateral so after heat I'm definitely excited to go there yeah I'm not overly fond of heat but I do love Collateral. I, I really loved Heat a lot, but I'm expecting to love Collateral as well, based on what I've heard. But after that, uh, I watched Eight and a Half. It is uh, Federico Fellini. Um, this is probably my favorite of all of my recent watches. It's a. It's, this was he made this after creating like what a lot of people considered his masterpiece, and everybody was waiting for the next one, uh, or just to see what he was going to do. And he had writer's block. And then he ended up just crafting the whole story around a director with writer's block. And it was this, like, there's there's moments of surrealism, but it's, it's not like this is happening in the world. It's, you just, 
it between dreams. Um, it's weird. There are times I feel like if you had seen Scrubs, you would almost kind of understand the the way this kind of breaks reality and goes into these weird surreal moments of just like playing into joke. Like there's a part where he's just feeling the pressure to to hurry up and cast somebody, and he 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 does not see anything in anybody, and the guy sitting behind him is it just being super oppressive and so it kind of he just points his hand up and people show up with a rope and they just tie a noose around the the producer and hang him like right there in the theater <laughs> but then it snaps back to it's things like that and it's it's really creative it's genuinely hilarious i was surprised with how funny the movie was uh like there's there's a 15 minute sequence where because he's the guy is also he's not a great guy he's he's having an affair uh with another woman while his wife is gone and she gets, and she ends up coming to the set, and the two meet, and we go into like this fifteen-minute sequence where, like, all of the women in his life just end up becoming best friends and like living in this huge castle with him. And he like he comes back with presents for everybody. He's like, "Oh, look, it's my sister-in-law who finally understands me." It's it's just really, really funny, really, really well written. Uh, one of my new favorites. Uh, and then after that, we did, me and my sisters watched the Planet of the Apes trilogy, uh, which felt, you know, very, very fit. The, the beginning of uh, Dawn, just with the the footage of the people in quarantines and stuff, I'm like, ooh, feeling pretty real. But uh, <laughs> I this just once again confirms how much I love this whole trilogy. Um, it's up there with, like, the Dark Knight trilogy for me at times, um, especially when these the second two of this are just at their best. Uh, and, and then lastly, I watched uh, Princess Diaries 2, Royal Engagement. <laughs> That's the one with Chris Pine, right? Yep. He's super charming. And that's that's it. I'm assuming that was your sister's pick? Yeah. Um, so I only watched uh, one movie over the last week. Um, it was a Studio Ghibli's 1991 film, only yesterday, I believe uh, the director's name is pronounced uh, Isao Takahata. I probably mispronounced that. Um, but he's the other big guy, uh, the, the co-founder of Studio Ghibli with uh, Miyazaki. Um, and I don't like his style as much as uh, Miyazaki's. Like Miyazaki's just works for me. I, I just find it mesmerizing to watch how he, you know, just how he views the world. Um, and... Uh, Takahata is obviously, you know, he's excellent, he's wonderful, and it's beautiful animation, but just his style just doesn't intrinsically connect with me the way Miyazaki's did. Um, the other one I've seen from him is uh, Grave of the Fireflies, which is also wonderful, but uh, this one, I thought it, it had, a, it had a, a very a story structure that was very similar to uh, the, the 2019 Little Women, where it was like constantly cutting back and forth between the past and the, and the present you know, every few minutes. Uh, although this was much more distinctive, you know, the, the age gap between the characters was much farther, and you know, it was it was much, it was you know it was much cl- the uh, time jumps were much clearer, but it had a similar kind of flow, and it just that just style just didn't do much for me. Like I I see what it was doing, you know, this kind of coming of age story, and and you know, a, a, an adult kind of trapped in a certain era, stage of their life trying to move on. It was it was interesting. Uh, but it didn't really hit me all that deeply emotionally, uh, despite being voiced by Daisy Ridley doing an American accent, which was weird. Hmm. And it wasn't, it was weird because uh, Dev Patel is also in it and he's just doing his traditional British accent. So I was like, why didn't you just have her do a British accent? I feel like, I feel like an element of her charm was lost 
you know, in in the accent. Uh, but I mean, it's it's a nice movie. I, I know like, most people really love it. Just didn't connect with me for some reason. Um, what I have been watching mostly this week uh, was TV in the form of uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer season six and uh, Angel season three. Angel being its spinoff show that kind of ran concurrently with it. So I'm kind of bouncing back and forth episodes between the two shows. Nice. Uh, this is Joss Whedon. And he's great. And uh, what I got to uh, the latest uh, awesome thing I got to was uh, the Once More with Feeling episode, uh, which is the famous musical episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> and if you've seen um, Dr. Harbaugh's sing-along blog, you know that uh, Whedon is a genius with musicals. And he is. <laughs> I've been listening to the music to the uh, the songs nonstop on you know, driving delivery. Um, I don't think the songs aren't as polished as they are in um in Dr. Horrible's and the cast, like the cast for the most part can't sing as well as Neil Patrick Harris and Felicia Day. However, uh, it's, it's a whole, the music itself is like far more ambitious. Like he is doing a proper musical and like complete with overtures and like these, you know, these huge, like overlapping lyrics. It's, it's just absolutely wonderful. Um, Without a doubt, one of the best episodes in the series. And overall, overall, just talking about the entire series, I, I, it is very enjoyable. It's you know, it's early two thousands television. You know, that's a, I, I don't entirely love the whole twenty two episode format, where you, ultimately what you have is like fifty like fifty percent filler almost or or more. And this this series was kind of one of the the big stepping stones from entirely episodic television to serialized television. So it's kind of kind of in the middle there. Um, but it's still very entertaining. Whedon, obviously, and 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 the uh, the staff of writers they have there is great. The cast of characters is wonderful. Angel isn't as good, but I still uh, I'm still enjoying it a lot. It's really finding its stride in the third season. Um, so yeah, fun television. Have you seen any of this? I have not, but I I have like friends and uh, my brother in law was a big fan, and so uh, and then some people in the church that I know uh, really loved it. So it's been on my radar and it's been something that i've wanted to watch especially with it being whedon but i haven't gotten around to it yeah even if the characters weren't absolutely wonderful it's worth watching for the times that whedon will come in and just completely uh uh, surpass like what was ever you know imagined possible for television like these episodes uh episode restless the body hush like he'll just come in and do and just do an episode that's completely wild and different from like the rest of the show and just the rest of what television was doing at the time. And there's like these masterpieces here and there that are just completely mind blowing that he does uh, over the course of the show. So yeah, I'm enjoying it. All right. Uh, let's move into our discussion on Jojo rabbit. Uh, we're not going to do the entire um, behind the behind the scenes story. However, me being a ginormous nerd, I, uh, nerd, I have to do some, some stats uh, so Jojo Rabbit was released in October on October 18th of 2019. It was written and directed by Taika Waititi. Uh, it's loosely based on the 2004 novel Caging Skies by Kristen Lewins. It stars Roman Griffin Davis, who uh, we mentioned in Captain Marvel. He's the son of the Marvel cinematographer Ben Davis, who did like uh, Doctor Strange, Age of Ultron, Captain Marvel, Guardians of the Galaxy. So that was a pretty cool connection. And obviously also starring Scarlett Johansson, uh, Taika Waititi, and Sam Rockwell. So just... Lots of uh, MCU stuff going on there. Other cast members were Thomas and McK- McKenzie, Archie Yates, Alfie Allen, Stephen Merchant, and for some reason, Rebel Wilson. Uh, hey, she's really funny in this. Yes, the greatest compliment I can give this movie is it made uh, Rebel Wilson almost tolerable. So, good on you. 
I kind of like it. Uh, the, the score was provided by Michael Giacchino, and it was produced by Fox Searchlight Pictures, and is actually the second to last film released by the studio before Disney uh, rebranded it as simply Searchlight Pictures earlier this year. It was made on a $14 million budget and grossed uh, total a worldwide total of $90 million, which is not bad at all. It was nominated for six Oscars, Best Picture, Adapted Screenplay, Best Actress for Johansson, Costume Design, Production Design, and Editing, and it won for Adapted Screenplay. And at the Golden Globes, it was nominated for uh, Best Picture, Musical or Comedy, and Best Actor in a Musical, musical or Comedy uh, for Roman Griffin Davis, uh, but it did not win either, unfortunately. So yeah, James, Jojo Rabbit, what do you think? Uh, I really, really, really love this movie. Uh, so the first time I saw it, right. I went with a couple of friends. Yeah, that's the review. You know, we don't need anything else. Um, the first time I saw it, uh, I went to the theater with a couple of friends, one of whom had already seen After it. I nagged you for like three weeks or whatever. That's true. But like, I literally, I, I genuinely had no opportunity to see it for a bit. And as soon as, uh, I found a showing that worked, uh, I, I went, got a couple of friends to go. One of them had already seen it though. And so... The story he had told, like after as we're walking out, I'm when the movie ended, I, I was just like bawling, mm-hmm. uh, like I, I could tell a friend was about to just kind of ask thoughts, and I just, just put my finger like, wait, just give me, give me a minute. <laughs> uh, but the guy who had seen it was just saying like every every time it showed Scarlett Johansson's feet, or any time they just have this lovely little mother son tender moment he would just start crying and he's like, I'd have to hide my face because I don't want to give anything away. Like, I don't like, Oh wow. This guy's crying every time Scarlett Johansson shows up. Something's up. Why does something happen to her? I I don't believe it. I don't believe anything. She's fine. But, uh, but it's so as soon as it's one of those movies where as soon as it finished, I would have wanted to walk right back in and seen it again or, like, I, I couldn't wait for it to come out to buy and show, like, as many people as I could. So when it came out, I got it and I showed my sisters. And then we showed our roommate. And then we went down to our parents and showed our other siblings and our parents. And, like, we within w- the first week it came out to own, we watched it three times that week. And it never it never got boring. It never got... To, I, I never felt... Because even a lot of times in movies that I love, you'll hit that moment of, like, okay... I know, like, the next part I can't wait to see them react to, but then we got to get through this bit. And it's just start to finish. I'm always just immediately connected with whatever is going on. I think the pacing of this movie, <laughs> having, like, one of the uh, the perks of seeing it so many times in such quick succession is just, like, you really get a feel for how it moves. And everything, like, the pacing is fantastic. Everything that happens is almost entirely motivated by like just what it could before there's there's just a lot of like logic in the way it moves it, it there's no real downtime it, it's so good and so entertaining as well like nothing's ever just functional it's either like breaking your heart or like you're either crying because you're something horrific has happened or you're crying because you're laughing it's just endlessly entertaining start to finish um so yeah that's that's a quick summary. I just I I really really connected with it and I really loved it and it's it's a, a new personal favorite of mine. So I had a really awesome day in the theater when I first saw this. Uh, the the theater that plays all the smaller and art house movies is like forty minutes away. So I just made a day trip and I watched uh, Parasite first and then walk, then went out and walked into Jojo Rabbit, uh, which those ended up being my I think my number one and uh, number 
three or four films of last year. It was a good year. day at the theater. It was a great day at the theater. Um, and I absolutely loved it then. And But then I, I went, went back and saw it again. And leaving, I was like, yeah, this is your five-star masterpiece, best film of the year. Like, it, like, and that, that second viewing, it's one of those films where like, – and this, honestly, it doesn't seem to happen. All that is This usually seems to happen in, in genre films. But it's one of those films where the second viewing – just completely opens up the movie in a way that you never expected. Like it's wonderful the first time through, but the setups and payoffs are so intricate and everything, mm-hmm. as you said, everything is means something going through the film that is, it's, it's, you can watch it over and over again. You're, and you're constantly going to be, be seeing things and the performances and just little tiny details, just, just the way Taika sets up uh, Rosie's feet, you know, her shoes. Uh, throughout the film mm. it, it it makes it like so much deeper and more emotional like just see all of these be- well, that first shot of seeing them hung you know and then recreating that shot when it's her yeah um so i, I guess before we get into more of the specifics i think just a broader discussion of what uh taika's doing here um i when i first heard he was gonna make a movie about like was a like a nazi child with an ima- where he was going to play imaginary Hitler you're just like what are you doing man like <laughs> what is this oh no baby what is you doing <laughs> and- <laughs> that honestly had me so excited though <laughs> like what kind of insanity is this but this was coming off Thor Ragnarok where I was I was that movie left me very disillusioned as to uh his dramatic abilities because you know Hunt for the Wilder People is very wonderful delicate dra- drama and then he made Ragnarok, which I I felt should have had like Lord of the Rings levels of emotion, and it was just fun and glib and not. It's I, I like that movie a lot, but it was just it didn't it didn't do anything for me emotionally. So I was kind of worried. Like was was Hunt for the Wilder People a fluke? Uh, but as this film reveals, I think uh, Ragnarok was the fluke for him. Just the, the film the le- the quality of of an intricacy of the filmmaking here really blew me away. Uh, like Hunt for the Wilder People is a good looking movie. Ragnarok has some pretty shots, but overall, I was kind of meh on the filmmaking. It felt very flat comedy direction, and I think that was probably just a function of, you know, his biggest film was like a couple, only cost a couple million, like tiny little New Zealand indie picture, and now he's doing a Marvel film. So, I imagine there was an element was so of just much of that being improv. You know, I think we talked yeah. about that on our episode. There's you just kind of set the camera down and then see what happens. And also, I think he's just trying to get through the day and get his freaking footage. Like, I, you, you, I, I'm very sympathetic to that. The fact that he's not, he's not from this world, so he's, he's just trying to make the film. But I feel like, similar to with Knives Out, to where I feel like he took every single lesson he learned on that big film, and then just was able to put like ten times as much effort into this tiny film and just do everything perfectly. Similar to like uh, Ryan Johnson's first three films are really great looking. But after the last, he did the last Jedi and then he did Knives Out, and like that movie, like just from a cinematic perspective, is like so much higher than those other ones, just from a visual, like just the way the camera moves and just how it looks and just how the filmmaking functions. It's it is just so much cooler. It's, it is interesting to see how you know directors, you know indie directors, they do a big film and then going back and applying the lessons they learned, you know, with all their all their you know all their uh, creativity that they already had, and so it's just it's a beautifully made film. Um. It's got the the one point eight five to one aspect ratio, very very highly saturated colors at least in the fir- you know the first two thirds of the film, and it's it's it, there's like a a small element of like a stylized Wes Anderson uh, cinematography, yeah. but not entirely because go ahead. 
I, yeah, I definitely got a Wes Anderson vibe, but it, and I, I, you know, looking through your notes, I think we, we feel similarly here where Wes Anderson, it's all about the symmetry. It's all about like setting up the shot, like a painting and this, like the colors here feel very, very similar to me. And especially like even just the costuming and the, the production design, it has that kind of whimsical reality to it but the camera is a lot looser here it, it never feels like it's confined or constrained and this last video i really saw why it was nominated for a, for an editing award because like so much of the story is told through the editing um like, there's a lot of beautiful long takes but just the way he rapid cuts through dialogue and these intricate scenes like where just there's like a dozen people in the room like where the gestapo comes and just the editing is so sharp and on point it is constantly telling the story and beautiful ways don't get me started on ford v ferrari winning best editing over this that's a beautifully edited movie i mean that's the races are beautifully edited i think it's i, I well that, that not to go too sidetracked i think just that movie has to cover so much time and just that that's a very difficult thing to do coherently so but <laughs> moving on um uh where was i <laughs> sorry uh and it, it usually kind of irritates me when a, when a film will will cut instead of just moving the camera. I like the long, you know, the fluid Spielberg waters. But this film, I think, despite having a lot of cutting, you know, in you know close environments, it 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 uses the the form of editing so well to its advantage. It, it, it's one of the most maybe the most like creatively edited film of the year. Like there are so many cool things that he does. Um, like you said, like cutting on dialogue in ways that don't just feel perfunctory, like like oh, we technically need to see this person speak, but it's it feels very intentional. Um, the like I said, just the the more macro editing, the way the movie like goes from scene to scene is really cool. I love the the sequence where some or two of some of my favorite. Well, actually, man, a lot of scenes are coming to mind. Some of my favorites, like examples of just the way he edits them, is you know whenever. Um, whenever Elsa is able to come out and just explore the house. And we, we just get to go with her room to room as we cut to each individual picture. We, we just have her stare at the tiger and just hold on her face. The tiger. Ah, looking in the eyes of a tiger. I know. And then I want to cry, uh, especially <laughs> on second viewings. Um, but I like the scene where she wrestles with him, you know, like there are no weak Jews and like, Every you know, turning around and the camera cutting to to where she faces now. I want to see you make a horror movie. Yes, because that first scene is amazing. But uh, yeah, it's just and then little things like you know, like him looking down at his stomach and then just having like the image of the butterflies there. It's there's always just something really really cool that he's doing. It's, it's never just and here's a scene of dialogue. It's the he's directing with the movie. You know, like the the direction always feels like it's it's an important part. It's never just let's set the camera down and the the actors are the stars of this scene. It, it always feels like he's, he's got an idea that he's implementing. And like, I feel like if, you know, minus an F word and a couple of S words, I feel like this movie could have been PG, which I think ma makes his handling of the violence really well done. Like you mentioned that scene where she puts him in a chokehold and it's, it's disturbing and brutal, but it's all, it's just it's two, two children wrestling. Um, or I think the scene, Rebel Wilson's death scene, where it's it's all all the violence in this film is just completely implied, and yet it feels as brutal as an R-rated film sometimes. Um, yeah. you know, just through the sound design and, and shot choices. Yeah, 
And man, speaking of that, uh, the scene, uh, Rebel Wilson's death scene, the scene after that, right? although I guess it's it's technically in that same scene, just that whole slow-mo as he just surveys the Dude. battle going around. That's one of the most beautiful little two minutes of any movie ever. Like that, that track is haunting. And then just as we cut back, um, from his slow motion perspective and he runs and he's just like hiding there shivering. Like I, it just, it looks like a little eight year old or sorry, 10 year old kid. You just want to reach out to in comfort. Oh, it's so amazing. The, the, the way that scene sequence escalates to where it just kind of starts as a normal day with like artillery in the distance. And then it just gets worse and crazier and crazier until we're in that full blown battle scene. And like, I did not know he was capable of like that, that scene you mentioned where just, you know, the 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 German shepherds, the old men and the women, the children handicapped, all just charging into battle. Um, just the the whole futility and heartbreak of it all is so beautifully uh, just uh, Sam Rockwell and Freddie Finkel going out in the blaze of glory they always wanted. It's just like that's like one of the greatest anti-war bits of film I've ever seen, and it's so and it does it without even, without even really showing. All you just see is the one side and the suffering, just the the, the pointless stupidity of that entire war. Um, yeah, is beautifully shown right there. And his balance in tone in this is just like I I don't understand still how this movie works as well as it does. Like that scene alone, magic is it has to be that scene. Like it to me, it reminded me of of uh, the scene where. Uh, or from in Bruges where Colin Farrell is just, you know, expressing all of his grief over killing the, the boy. And that scene is hilarious and heartbreaking, like within the span of 30 seconds. And this, you know, you you see the callback to the German shepherds. You see the callback to like his, his copyright uniform. And it's it's hilarious. But that whole scene feels super heavy all at the same time. And I'm like, any... Any chuckle I may get, like as I, I see the German shepherds and I, you know, I, I chuckle there and I, I see uh, Sam Rockwell and that eyebrow raise, which is just amazing. And you see a dead child. Yeah. And it, it, like all of this never, the tones never feel competing. It's just, it's a mixture of a bunch of insane things. And for some reason, whatever I need to feel is what I'm feeling. And that scene directly follows these like hilarious Yorkie you The Russians, Jojo, they're coming. And the Americans from the other way. And England and China and Africa and India. The whole world is coming. Our only friends are the Japanese. And just between you, me, you and me, they don't look very Aryan. One of the greatest lines ever. we got to stop them before they screw all our dogs, Jojo. <laughs> like, the lines like that, which, th- those are the ones that just caught me so off guard. I'm like, Who's, who is writing this? This is amazing. And I never would have thought of any of these jokes. But they're all like, all of these are landing. It's hilariously but i think perfectly just stabbing you know at the heart of just how moronic the entire nazi propaganda was and yet and yet i adore how this film it never it doesn't feel like it's just standing on the edge and judging them and i think i i I gotta talk about that opening montage um another brilliant piece of editing from uh ytt uh, the, the I want to hold your hand in German, mm. uh, you know, right off the bat, comparing Hitler's rise to Beatlemania. Um, and right there, it just demonstrates how an entire nation and, and, and how obviously a child 
would be swept up in the show. I mean, you've got the freaking swastika in the sky with jet. Like this is, yeah, you you really get to see it from their perspective. You know, this this is what was being presented to them. It's this huge production. And it's fun. It's cool. And like me going into this movie without even having the entire film, you know, you know, having the entire film behind me, like right off the bat with that montage, knowing damn well who Hitler was and what he did. I'm getting excited and into the music and into the pomp and the show. And I just I adore that right off the bat. He's saying like, like even though the film is brutal and ruthless with the stupidity of it all and the evil of it all, it's also saying you know, if you were there, you'd be a Nazi too. Which I, I I love that the film doesn't set us up as just judges over these people. It's like it's just like it's about these people and about how they get there and 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 you know, this the salvation of one boy's soul out of this whole horrible situation. But while also completely making us understand why you know how how it got there. And like a lesser filmmaker would have gone would have had that montage with creepy music and. And making sure it's 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 just it feels wrong, but he he doesn't have to tell us that it's wrong. He just lets it he lets it go and let allows us to feel exactly what they would have felt. And I adore that. Yeah. As soon as that scene starts and we're just cutting between him running down and and all of the images of of the people crying at these parades, I was like, okay, this is I. If this is his, if this is his version of satire, like I'm so on board with this. This already feels like you said. You you can kind of you can tell by certain decisions made if somebody, you know, is just kind of like, well, this is what you do. This is easy. I, I this will get this will definitely be a safe bet. But to for for somebody with the vision that Tyke has to come in and be like, no, we're setting it to hold your hand. We're parading around. We're showing people cry. And I'm going to start my movie with like a back and forth Heil Hitler with like a 10 year old boy and imaginary Adolf. And then extend that out into what feels like a Nazi version of the golden ticket scene from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> like it, I don't know. I feel like if directed wrong, that could have just come over or come off as just so poorly done. But you know exactly the intention because the execution is just so spot on. And I think that that the, the film's secret weapon is that it is completely from a child's perspective. And it never, ever breaks that perspective. Like there, there's no like blatant editorializing, which I think would have really destroyed that tone. It's just it allows us to feel and be in the moment of whatever a child would feel going through this circumstance. And so when, when you know they're psyching themselves up, screaming "Heil Hitler" at each other, and he's running down the street just heiling everyone, and it's it's just exuberant. And you know, going to the the, the uh, Hitler Youth Camp, and it's kind of creepy because the Nazis are obviously super creepy, but also it's fun because we're gonna shoot things and blow up grenades and you know have war games and blowing stuff up. Exactly. <laughs> um, just the the whole thing. It's so it's so good. Speaking of that, that Hitler Youth training, the, 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 I love how, like even like at the beginning, you know, it's fun, it's goofy, and then, and then just in a moment, it turns horrifying with the rabbit scene, um, and it's it's like the, the and these are just the even the the evil Nazi older Nazi youth kids, they're just schoolyard bullies who have now been empowered and given a target and 
and they're able to just act with impunity, but they're, they're, they're still just children. Yeah, it reminds me, uh, there's a, an interview, I think it was one of those um, Vanity Fair, what it, like the breaking down a scene where Taika and Steven Merchant were talking about just the way they wanted to portray the villain, like, not Hitler, but like the, the actual physical villains in the film, whether it's Merchant, the, uh, those bullies. I think what they were saying is more in reference to, to Merchant. Uh, but I feel like that the set, what he described applies here in that it's so there's just kind of something mundane about this kind of evil where it's just these these in any other circumstance. Like you described Stephen Merchant's character as like he would have just been a pencil pusher, just kind of this office guy. And the situation at hand is what I mean, al- we all know that bureaucrats are the source of all evil in the world. Anyway, well, there you so go. Exactly. And so whenever it's presented that way, it's like, OK, yeah, this sticks out. But like. There was just that kind of like mundane real worldness to to the villains here, you know? Like it they they felt like this is this is a person who was allowed to do what they did because of the circumstance and in another circumstance they would have just been that jerk on the playground. Like these these aren't these over the top super villains. And like even though they were, they were so evil, like just the way they they were singling out JoJo because you know because they saw signs of weakness and hesitation from during the war games. Like even though they're so horrible in that moment, I still feel a twinge of pity when I see the kid, you know, gloriously riding off to war. I'm going to war because he's gonna die in a war that he doesn't understand, and that's it. He's dead. And there's no there's no satisfaction. It's just sad. Yeah. And I, I really like also just the way that that whole sequence introduces us to Jojo as a character. Like, you know, introducing from the beginning, it, like a kind of a sense of hesitation already, like whether they see him in the war games kind of getting freaked out or, or a shot I love. And I feel like encapsulates what this like the, what this movie is saying about the Nazi propaganda and why why people were so bought into it. You see that book burning scene in slow motion and you just have him kind of look uneasy and he looks around and everybody's jumping up and high-fiving each other and throw like he sees this party and that, that expression kind of dissipates and it turns into a smile and he just, he starts jumping up and grabbing it. And and that's how it happens. You get bought into the production and into the hype and you don't even know what you're celebrating. Yeah, exactly. The, the, the brilliant line, you're not a Nazi, Jojo. You're just a 10-year-old boy who likes swastikas and likes funny costumes and wants to be part of a club. I'm massively into swastikas. <laughs> but just that, that idea that it's just people want to go along to get along. They don't want to – and it's just the, the whole mob mentality and, and hype, it can – it'll take you. And then just, you know, just on the on the subject of the way this movie treats, treats the Nazis – I was actually. This goes to your point of the movie not presenting itself as, on, on like enlightened. You know, we are decades in the future. We are enlightened. We are here to look down. Like obviously, the Nazi Party was was obviously evil, but there was death. Like like we've already been talking about. There are people who just did not understand what was going on. There was they were being sold this lie. They were being like, you know, these children actively being brainwashed and stuff. Um, and so I was kind of surprised at, you know, the level of empathy, like the fact that we can see that kid, you know, shouting that he's going off to war. The fact that that movie can allow us to be like, oh, like he he has no idea what's 
what's truly going on, um, I, I think is also like surprising to me, but refreshing. And, you know, the scene where, where he and his mother are riding their bikes and you've got the soldiers coming home and, and this person who is actively working against the Nazi party, actively um, hiding Jews, being the person that these people, or, you know, th- that these people would be hunting or not obviously those soldiers specifically, but that this party is actively opposing. You know, she sees them and she, you know, welcome back, boys, go home and kiss your mother. There's just, there's an acknowledgement. That's because she's the best human that ever lived. Exactly. There's just an acknowledgement of universal humanity. Like, we Mm. can feel empathy for people. And, like, one of the big critiques that have come against this film is just a lot of people who are enormously uncomfortable with a film portraying Nazis as human. And, I mean, I certainly understand the sentiment. You don't, Nazis are bad. Like that, we can we can all agree with that. Um, But I think, uh, to be honest, I think it's a sign of like fragility in a worldview if you cannot abide showing the other side as human. I think you like it takes a robust worldview and an understanding of what you believe to be able to realize that you know the other side they're not they're not just devils and they're not all evil they're just they're just people like you and you know that that doesn't mean they don't you know, that doesn't that doesn't take away showing them as human does not take away accountability and i feel like there's something that's been lost in not to get political but the whole the whole climate we have today where it's just if someone doesn't agree with you on these things they're they're evil and you just you have to go around and you know dehumanize them and just and and, and it's it's well, what, what's disturbing about that is I'm not saying that people, you know, politically active people are Nazis, but that's that in a way is a similar strain to exactly what the Nazis did. Like what they did was they found a target, a political enemy that was expedient, and they dehumanized them, and that is how they were able to do what they did. So to to, to turn it around now and and see people who are absolutely unwilling and just resistant to the notion of displaying anyone in an entire in an entire nation of millions of people as human with all the same problems that we have it's it's it, it not not entirely it's not the holocaust but it's it is a similar vein of dehumanization that i like we just have to be more self-aware and, and the simple fact is if any of us lived in germany we would not be like if we lived in, in the south in the civil war or in germany we wouldn't be the ones in the Underground Railroad. We wouldn't be the ones hiding Jews. Like, the very best of us might be Sam Rockwell just kind of trying to live until it all blows over. And, like, a, a couple saints might be like Rosie. But the most of us, we'd be JoJo. Or, at the very best, just kind of sitting and waiting for it to end. Yeah. Because that's what people do. Is it, that's what we would do. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, like, that... I feel like you also on on the flip side you lose the the horror of of war and all of this needless death when you dehumanize uh, like the villains because then it it turns into like they are the mo- like it, it it makes things not that World War Two on a macro level was fairly black and white but when you get into the small like just the individual people you know. As we've already talked about, there were a lot of people who were just so enraptured in what was going on and were largely ignorant. And then there were other people who were 
like more aware but they were also human and that's also what makes those kinds of villains scarier you know it's like Stephen Merchant yeah he as a character he's he's not um unaware of what's going on and, but they still like I mean you know they play with the height they make him this you know freaky kind of person <laughs> But even he isn't this mustache twirling person. I, like I love the scene where he finds the book and he sees all of the different, uh, you know, all of the different depictions of Jews. Because in his mind, you can tell he sees this and he's like, "Yep, this is like what we're doing is working." It's funny because it's true. Yeah, <laughs> and like he's he's deriving so much pleasure from seeing the propaganda work. Or you know, like oh, this is my kind of kid's bedroom. Like this is. <laughs> Again, he he's a very that's a human kind of villain who's just he's seeing the fruit of what they're doing and I don't know all around just, when, when you humanize people he's taking pride in the job well done exactly. good for him and so when you, when you humanize them both for the sake of empathy and for the sake of like no it's it, it's not these kind of one dimensional monsters that do this it's it's another person that does this just all around it, it just it makes I don't know it just makes more sense to me yeah and. And I think like, just all of that is the backdrop of why this film is so beautiful. And it, it's and it, it's not about the war. It's not even about the Holocaust. It's about this one child and watching the, the, the war through his eyes and and going from this radical Hitler youth, you know, fanatic to who he is at the end. Just he's just a normal kid who's seen far more than he ever should have and now has to live in, in a broken world. And is and I just the childlike perspective is so good, and I I, I know uh, you know just some criticism like people like who kind of didn't like that the film was so focused on Jojen like, like it's a Holocaust movie but the Holocaust never shows up or you know they wanted they wanted a more macro picture and and and, and more editorializing you know very you know very confidently saying to the camera this was wrong and I think that like that I think it's kind of missing the entire point of the film which is is to see it through the eyes of a child. He doesn't see the Holocaust. He doesn't even, he, he might know Jews are quote unquote evil, but he doesn't know how it's happening, what's what's going on. And it's him, so from his perspective, we're forced to, you know, to meet Elsa, which is a challenge to everything he believes. And, you know, his, mo- his mother, you know, as, as a resistance, uh, you know, operative, like, like we meet those challenges with him. And there's, and it's the, the, the that very just slow, you know, wearing off of, his edges you know it's based through basic human contact and empathy which is you know it's just it's that it's very it's very true to how humans grow and change we don't usually don't have these big moments of lightning and fireworks it's just when our minds are changed it's usually something that happens over months or years it's it's this film just grounds us very much in that slow process of change of, of human growth and change and i think you know making it a more macro level picture would just would undermine all of that. And I, you know, to, to compliment his filmmaking again, I love that the world itself kind of reflects Jojo's journey, you know, and part of that is because of the, you know, the season moving from uh, a very colorful season into winter. Like, I don't know if Berlin actually fell in the winter, but even if it fell in like the bits of summer, that was the right filmmaking choice. Yeah, exactly. Just having this, having the movie itself, move away from this just joyful kind of exuberant look into a more 
like the, the montage of him after after Rosie's killed and he's you know digging in the trash and we you know seeing the rabbit out in the snow and seeing all of the people on the sides of the of the streets like that's so effective and when you have your movie reflecting like the actual arc you can't help but feel exactly as you need to just the, the propaganda that he painted on earlier pe- you know, crumbling and peeling off the walls says everything yeah yeah let's like let's just move through the characters uh we, we got to talk about rosie uh scarlett johansson like she she was nominated wait was she nominated twice yes. yeah she was nominated twice which she deserved because this character is absolutely wonderful and just knowing where it goes you just treasure every single second between her and jojo and i, I like to think that she was like a, a vaudeville actress or something before like because she she's such a she's so much of a showman like constantly dancing and she's like she's just and I, I love that it, that is not all there is to her character she's not just the bouncy joyous person who's constantly performing for a child i love that that when she's with uh elsa that completely breaks and disappears she realized that like, her her child's soul is in danger and he is teetering on the edge and th- the helplessness is so beautifully conveyed like if she says anything outright to him, then he'll probably go to the to the police and she'll be arrested and killed. She'll just dis- she'll be disappeared. So like she can't actually confront, like directly confront this evil growing in her child. Like so she just does the best she could with this just joyous exuberance and celebration of life and just trying the best she can through you know, through different you know, like sneaking into the side to try and find the child that she knows is in there. Yeah. It's powerful. And the moments that almost like just as much as like the actual reveal of her death and and the uh, the aftermath and the, the scene of just him going to stab Elsa, which is one of the most emotionally emotionally brutal images Dude. ever to me. But uh, the scenes that kind of match those in emotion on rewatches are are those tender moments that they share together where she is still just trying to be this voice of of kindness and tenderness in his life uh and like i can't help but kind of get teary-eyed every time i I watched it after that first viewing of you know when, when he can't wink and she's trying to show him how and she holds <laughs> it like and then he that little laugh he gives and it's ugh, knowing what happened so beautiful together and that the scene also watching it you know i knew that she was nominated by the time i had seen it so the whole time like I, I, i'm waiting not that I not that I don't think that she'll deserve it because I, I watched Marriage Story first, so I already was fully convinced that like Scarlett Johansson is one of the most fantastic working actresses. I don't doubt that she that she will deserve the supporting actress nomination as well. But I was waiting to be shown that, and the scene where she mm-hmm. plays the father, I was like, "Yep, nominator. <laughs> this <laughs> no arguments here. This, this is fantastic," and as like. That scene starts with that awkward tension. The bit of Hitler getting up and leaving is amazing. Um, <laughs> but you've got that animosity and everything that he, like, that he's showing towards her. But then, like, as soon as she's doing all of this, uh, you know, and she's dancing, and he kind of, he kind of, he has that embarrassed look as he looks away, and then she has him over there. The moment that just breaks me is whenever he's standing on the chair and he just puts his ha- his head on her shoulder and they kind of sway there. I'm like, this is wrong. Like, movies shouldn't do this to me. But, uh, mm-hmm. it's just, like, she's able to convey all of, like, all of the feelings that we would have for our own mother. Just like that, that sense of 
immediate comfort and uh and tenderness and like just aren't any any sense of comfort or childhood comfort is kind of summed up in just the image of them and she Mm -hmm. all of that is she just emanates it all this comforting voice of reason and kindness and it, it never feels like acting it just feels like oh no rosie was a person an actual good person and like all of that pantomime and goofiness is trying to get to those moments to break through this like this child who thinks he's a man and thinks he's so big and knows all about life and she's just trying to wear that down with love um <laughs> the whole dinner scene is just a masterpiece here. my face looks like a damn street map woman <laughs> And he he's so nasty and hurtful, but in a childlike way. And like I, there are, there are two scenes, like the scene with that, and when he writes the letter to Elsa, the first letter, where it's like when you're a kid and you're mad and you just want to hurt the person, and then you actually do, and it's the worst feeling in the world. It's so unrewarding. And you so feel so pathetic and helpless because you 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 got what you wanted, and oh my gosh, now they're hurt and I feel terrible. <laughs> I just got to sit here and stew in my misery. The whole the whole aspect of the, you know, the missing father, the dead sister, it's like these these things that are they're never they're rarely directly addressed, but there's just clouds hanging over, and like and I think you know that's a big part of of, of why Rosie feels so helpless. You know the father is gone, and leveraging the father in, in that sequence, you know when he when he gets out of control, she kind of leverages the father's strength. You know don't you ever talk to your damn mother like that again, and it's like it's it shocks him out of it. And then going, you know, having that conversation with herself, it's, 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 what, what, what am I watching? It's beautiful. Yeah. And also like her comedic timing is also just really amazing. It doesn't hurt that every line is just brilliant. Yeah. Uh, You know, like I, for one, am cursed with looking incredibly attractive or, uh, or even like, she's got a really great physicality in this, whether, you know, it's her dancing up on the steps or where he finds her sneaking in and it goes from the robot or when, you know, when <laughs> she finds out that, you know, the war looks like it's coming to a close and she just kind of does that little dance as she sits down and you're like, Oh, you're not I'll just it. sit here and chew in these grapes. Yeah. Like, it's just like, she is a genuine performer in this movie, but it never, it, it feels like a performer in the way like you described of a mom actually like, going through these kind of theatrics for the sake of like getting to that kid that she knows is in there. Mm-hmm. Mama thinks, boy, you got to trust me. I'm the boss around here. <laughs> um, but, and, and I love that, that that whole showman's facade completely disappears when she has those really beautiful conversations with Elsa. Um, and like the, the first one where she's kind of talking about Jojo. Um, uh you know, I know he's sitting there somewhere, the little boy who runs to you because he's scared of thunder and thinks you invented chocolate cake. In the end, it's all you have. Hope that your only remaining child is not just a ghost. And is she's so it's so heartbreaking. She's so just she's so deeply vulnerable. And just and, and like like we get to see that other aspect of her relationship with children, the the f- absolute fear and desperation that he might be like if this war continues like if they win this war his soul is probably going to be lost forever he's going to join the machine and he'll go beyond her reach and and but now it's just her you know the father's gone and she can't actually say anything but she has to do whatever she can to hold him back and yeah and those scenes you know they they give they end up um rounding out her character a lot like like you've been saying you it it gives context to 
any sense any sense of silliness or theatrics that we see there and we we see her in her most like honest and kind of vulnerable sense and th- those scenes are just so well acted both between her and thomasine mckenzie where when you know she's like i he he heard something up here he thinks it's a ghost and uh elsa just kind of looks down and, and she won't make eye contact and then and then she looks back and kind of smiles like oh may- maybe you could reason with it. you know there there's really really great little subtle bits in there um but i, I love how torn um she plays the character there where you know she she has this love and desperation for her son but she still just feels the weight and the heaviness that Elsa's you know Elsa is experiencing and you're like you have to make tomorrow the same there's there's such a deep desire I I gotta read it as long as there's someone alive somewhere then they lose they didn't get you yesterday or today you make tomorrow the same tomorrow must be the same and you, (laughs) you see the emotion in her eyes during that that plea um, and or, and the, 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 what it means to you know uh, Elsa's character who's just completely losing hope of she spent who knows how long she spent living in the walls you know and hasn't seen the sun or anything. It's, it's, the, the cut that really just breaks my heart is you know as we we have that lovely moment with her and and Jojo where they're dancing and then we cut to Elsa up just forced to listen to the music alone. It's, ugh, it's so sad, but then I I love other other moments there where. You know she's she's so aware of of what all of this means to Elsa. Like whenever she's saying, um, like if I'm forced to choose between you or my son, and she kind of catches herself, and she's like, I I won't know what to do with you. Like I don't know where you'll go. Um, mm-hmm. Or or moments of you know like I, I I wish that I could have seen her grow into a woman. And then again, she kind of like, but but I'll I'll have to settle for, or not settle, but like I'll I'll have to watch you grow up instead. It's there's constant kind of expressing herself in these honest ways while being very aware of of the situation and the the person that she's talking with. And like there's there's so you know like she doesn't know that uh, Elsa knows, and Elsa is trying to like there's so many things going on. Like I think the the maybe three scenes that they share up there. There's just, there's so much in all of it. And I like, not only does it open up uh, the side of the beautiful side of, you know, her Rosie's character that she can't show to Jojo, but the, just the, the beautiful, like blooming mother daughter relationship between her and Elsa is incredible. Um, And then you, you just put that relationship over, you know, who she would have been for Enya. It's yeah. Like, Oh, man. And the response to that line, we were, we're, you know, she says, I don't know anything about being a woman. And she goes to this beautiful monologue. You, know, you drink champagne if you're happy, champagne if you're sad. You drive a car, gamble if you want, own diamonds, learn how to fire a gun. You travel to Morocco, take up lovers, make them suffer. You look a tiger in the eye and trust without fear. That's what it is to be a woman. Op- just trying what you get to open up the world for this scared little girl in her wall. And <laughs> I love, um, you know, just we're, you know, Elsa. You know, she, I don't know how old she's. I'm guessing probably late teens. And she's seventeen. Seventeen. Yeah. And just she's. Well, how, are you? Why are you saying? Why are you saying that? Um, uh, because she's three years older than. Uh, than uh, Inya was when she died, and Inya died when she was fourteen. Well, she she could just be saying that because she's lying to this Gestapo. So. Yeah, but I also feel like when she says, you know, Inya and I were friends, I I 
kind of pictured mm. them being like same age friends. Yeah, I just love that Elsa gets to be the little girl with a mother. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just, uh, she asked you, did you do any of that? Did you ever do any of that? He's like, I never looked a tiger in the eye. And she makes that goofy little face. Uh, and I love that she gets she gets a beautiful scene with Elsa and a beautiful scene with Jojo before not, nothing happens to her, before she's fine. She's totally fine. Before she dances with them in the street. Yeah. Um so we talk, and then just the the, the sequ- the the scene under the under the uh at I don't know where it is like it's like on the bank like at, along the river. Oh my gosh, I love that scene. Um, <laughs> someday you'll find someone. Why does everyone keep telling you that? Who else tells you that, kid? Everyone, <laughs> are you drunk again? Yeah, it's just and then just tying his shoes together and making him hop up the shoes like they're so mm. just beautiful together and. We we have to dance to show God we are grateful to be alive. Dancing is for people that are free. I'm like, how is it? Like every single conversation, every single line, just blows my mind. Uh, how does he do that, James? I don't know. There's something like I, I watched a, a TED talk that he had given. You can tell that like this subject matter, especially because his his mother is Jewish. Yeah, he calls himself a, a Polynesian Jew. Yeah, and, and you know this is that's how he describes himself. <laughs> that's nice. This like, I feel as if this is his most personal, and you just feel how much he cares about what he's trying to say in every scene. And th- there's that there's the one moment where I feel like all of that just bursts through. Um, when uh, JoJo gets a bit uppity. Uh, on Elsa, and she, when she she grabs him in that chokehold. You know, break free, break free, great Aryan. There are no weak Jews. I am descended from those who wrestle angels and kill giants. We are chosen by God. You were chosen by a pathetic little man who can't even grow a full mustache. And I feel like that is you know him, uh, just speaking for the Jewish people against any just you know, spitting in the eye of Hitler and, Nat- and Nazi Germany, but also every single other culture and nation throughout history who has. For you know whatever reason, pick the Jews as the scapegoat for their troubles, or just just a, a target, you know, a target for whatever bigotry they have, and the you know, tribalist hate. It is this a powerful uh, for me moment of defiance against all of that. And just you know, we're still here. Um, I don't know, that that monologue was just blew me away. Yeah, that's that whole scene is amazing. All, all of their like early interaction. Well, really, every interaction is amazing, but. You know, the, I love seeing their dynamic, like the way it begins and the way it, it kind of gets shaped by their conversations. Another moment that I love is whenever uh, he, like she is describing, you know, her people. And we have that incredible, like I, I think it's a harp, but this music playing as she's talking about like diamonds and, and like these things that they love. And she's describing this culture. You can just tell like, there's a sense of, of pride in the way she speaks. And it feels, you know, knowing uh, these things about Taika, it, it, it feels like he's loving this opportunity to just, you know, like take pride in his, in his, uh, in this kind of, this culture and this people. Mm-hmm. And, and I love that they don't just make her a, an angel like she doesn't win jojo over because she's just so perfect and nice and someone that nice couldn't possibly be evil like she's got her own issue like she she is really enjoying torturing this little boy like she's taking a kind of disturbing amount I'll of pleasure nazi head off yeah and like it's understandable she's 
obviously spent who knows how long in absolute fear and anger and terror. And she has a tar- she has a target now, uh, some, some, someone to let that out. And now, like she has this little bit of power over a Nazi and she's just really, really enjoying it. Um, <laughs> you know what I am? Say it. A Jew. Wasn't that? <laughs> um, she's like, it, it, like there, there is a. Uh, there's a na- kind of a really angry, nasty side to her. Just like, whenever Jojo gets a little, you know, too too big on himself, she'll just like resort to violence and throw him across the room. Or this isn't a picture <laughs> of people. This is just a stupid picture of my head. <laughs> yeah, and, and and just the the way that 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 relationship is just is played out through the movie. And I love that she's she's also she's never like evangelistic towards Jojo. Maybe towards there are a couple lines where she, like. She will be combative and like hostile towards his stupidity, but she's never she's never like she never raises him up as like the judge of her humanity. She's like I am what I am, and you just gotta deal with it, kid. And she does she never allows him to you know to be the judge. Um, and so like she, there's no plead there's no pleading or anything. And, like she 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 doesn't need him to believe that she's human. Yeah. I, I love, you know, talking about the way their dynamic shifts. I love that there's there's never even that that moment of like, okay, now we're cool with each other. It just kind of, it blossoms and it happens. Like, you know, it's it's not until he references, you know, like, oh, they helped us. And or when he was talking about Captain K, it's like, he helped us. Uh, that's the kind of the first time there's this... A, he's kind of identifying himself with her, you know, like Mm -hmm. they helped us keep this thing under wraps. And, and then you, you, that, at least for me, that's when I started to think like, Oh, well this kind of, it feels like this is referencing this, this change of heart. That's, that's already happened, you know? And and, you know, he's talking about like, I've, I've got a girlfriend, but she's Jewish. She's like a girlfriend. Good for you, Jojo. And, And you wonder like when, when this moment was, that he changed and it's it because apparently like, it wasn't this one singular moment it was this slow breaking down this kind of worldview that he had and all of this stuff that has been beaten into his mind you know you have that moment of where she's drawing the picture and he just kind of looks at her and and then you know like the butterflies and it's, <laughs> it's this thing that just slowly happens and and i love the way that their relationship grows that way where there's not always this one dramatic moment and things change. It, it feels very real it, it, despite all of the absurdity and ridiculousness that happens in this movie, the way they grow together just feels so natural. Yeah. Like she, uh, I, 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 cause what I was saying where she's not evangelistic and she's not just a perfect little girl. Like the thing that forces him to him to see her as human is her humanity. It's her anger you know her sadness, her pain, like just she. It forces him to see that she is just a living, feeling human, just like him. And I think I think one of the big turning points is when when he writes the fake letter that you know intended yeah. to hurt her, and it actually hurts. Her. <laughs> and he's like, and he's like petrified and feeling terrible. So he quickly goes and writes another letter to make her feel better. And I think you know, that that moment where he realized the power he has to actually injure her. And he realized that he doesn't want to do that, even though we're, we're still not cool and you're still a Jew. But yeah. <laughs> uh, as I said, there's, there's no turning point because there are a dozen scenes and each one is just a tiny little increment from one point to where, you know, she, they're, they're, you know she's hold, holding him in a chokehold, threatening to cut his Nazi head off. 
And in the end, you know, I love you too. Like a little brother, like a little brother. <laughs> and it doesn't just happen. It just, it, 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 it evolves in such a beautiful, natural way. It's getting hot in here. <laughs> uh, I love the little smile she gives him right then. And then just thinking about their, their relationship, the another moment that just emotionally breaks me is whenever uh, Yorkie says, you're like, now your girlfriend can be free. And he realizes the implications of Germany losing. And he, he goes back and he lies to her. Like that whole bit. I mean, like, you know, you lost, you have to stay here with me. That whole sequence is just like, I want to give him an Oscar for that sequence. Uh, but you see, like, he's forced to to realize what she's ended up, you know, like, what she means to him now. And and we get there so naturally. And that scene is coming out. I want to talk about the scenes that lead up to that. Uh, and the, the two big, uh, the, the, obviously, there's the shoe scene, which didn't happen, but we got to talk about it anyway. Uh, like, I don't know. What was your reaction in the theater? For me, I was. Like it shocked me, like in like to like the snap from Infinity War level of shock, and just like movies don't do this. You're not allowed to do this. You're too happy and fun. Like, and she was such a just, like she was just life and joy. Like this is this light. Like the, just the moment where she's you know welcome home, boys, go kiss your mothers. Like she's just bringing light and joy and humanity wherever she can, and she's gone. She just disappears from the film. We didn't even see it happen. It's uh Tim, say something. I can't. <laughs> I, so for me, I it was this weird kind of confused shock of like when it happens. At first, I didn't re- like I didn't realize that the shoes were the giveaway at first, and I was like, wait. And then obviously his reaction, I understood what was going on. And I was like, wait, this is Scarlett Johansson. This isn't what's happening. This couldn't be. And so Movies I don't do this. I was so just like taken aback by what was going on that I wasn't like it wasn't that I was emotionally absent I was still just kind of like processing like so wait what does this mean what's what's the movie going forward like how does and then it wasn't until the second viewing that when that happened you know as he he tries to tie the shoes and he can't and he just he hugs the feet again then you know it, it, it wasn't this kind of like process like okay wait what's going on the second viewing and how can you make shoelaces so sad <laughs> Yeah, it's since then it's just tears as soon as it happens. Because it, it's so beautifully set that there are like at least three close-ups on her feet, um, like which they're at they're at the pool and she's walking on the ledge or walking on the wall at the, on the sides of the road, and it's just he makes sure we see it so he can kill us with it. <laughs> um, um, but circling back to the Gestapo visit, what makes that scene so horrifying in retrospect is that they're there. Because they just arrested and hanged his mother. That's why they're raiding his house. And we don't know it yet. And oh my gosh, what the hell, James? How can and he- How am I supposed to laugh at the scene now, knowing what's happened? Because Steven Merchant is hilarious? <laughs> <laughs> no, we were just hide hitting the boy, and then hide hitting yourself, and of course, hide hitting Freddy Finkel. <laughs> Steven Merchant is wonderful. I, I, the first time I ever saw him was in Logan. And like, he really, he kind of impressed me there, and I, I I haven't seen many of his comedic much of his comedic work, but dang, is he good! And I love yeah. like, he spends the entire time like standing on an apple box, just a tower over people <laughs> with his this like weird skeletal smile he has. 
Um, Give us a ring. Hello, is this the Gestapo? I think there's a communist hiding behind my fridge. We go to investigate. It's just some mold. So not far off. Now, now, there's no need to attack his hideous to physical deformity. <laughs> yeah, he's hilarious and he's also horrifying and terrifying at the same time. Like, how does he do that? Again, like, that's this whole movie is like, how is how is any of this happening? Like, how or how is how are all of these things happening at the same time? Like, I'm laughing and I'm feeling emotion. And this guy is like, there is tension that is just unreal in this scene while it's also hilarious at the same time. And mm-hmm. Which brings us uh, to Captain Klusendorf, uh, Sam Rockwell. And Captain I, K. I, every, every, <laughs> woohoo! Uh, every time I see this man, I fall in love with him more and more. Because, like, it's like he's, he's so, he, like, he just, you just tell, he just doesn't want to be here. He doesn't believe in anything the Nazis are doing. But this is what the world's like. So he's just trying to live and maybe or he, what he really wants is just to go go to war and you know, die in glory. But he lost his eyes. So that can't happen. So now he's babysitting all the titty grabbers. And it's <laughs> just so pathetic. And a good question. And just the, 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 way, the way his relationship with Jojo kind of, uh, you know, like every time we see him, his, his greeting for Jojo is just a little bit warmer. And he's just really just kind and understanding. Um, <laughs> the walnuts are just walnuts, kid. <laughs> but like the, the, the fact that he comes to their house and like at, at first it's like was that just a was that just a coincidence? But then you realize no, he either heard that his mother died and was coming to check up on her, or he heard that there was a Gestapo raid and he's coming to check up on Jojo to make sure he's okay. Like, oh, dude, I I just love yep. the guy so much. And you know, like whenever whenever she has to hand them that and he he's he's the one to say like oh let me see it like yeah, he, he steps up to protect her uh, like just watching that scene and just watch sam rockwell trying yeah. to play everyone is just like a, a, a master class in acting it's good it's nice to meet you and you uh and like i don't understand like oh sam rockwell's playing another racist who's actually nice just, uh. i like there is a <laughs> To me, like Sam Rockwell has just been consistently impressing me every time I see him. Have you seen uh, Three Billboards? Yes. Have Have you seen that one? Yes. He is phenomenal in that. And, and that, like that, that's just a similar thing where what I what I I adore about the film, but a lot of people find it too uncomfortable, is that he Mark McDonald he does he he doesn't allow he doesn't hide the evilness of these people. And yet he also doesn't allow us to dehumanize them, which is so hard to do. And it's, you know, it's similar to what happens here. It's a hard line. It, it's a hard line to walk. Like, and it makes people really uncomfortable. Yeah. And if you err too much on either side, you, you kind of lose what it's all about. And yeah, I, I, he's, he's really bold in the roles that he's choosing. But I mean, I, he was nominated for that. He's, I wouldn't have been upset with a nomination for this. I feel like it takes just an enormous amount of arrogance to try and judge this character. Like he has to fight, try and find a way to like, he's, he's, he's doing the bare minimum, you know, that he can get away with. He's not trying, you know, to be evil. He's not being evil to do. He's just doing what he can to survive and, and, you know, helping, helping people along the way. And like, that's like it just if the fact that he has a swastika on his shoulder means that you cannot humanize you know, empathize with a human being in such a horrible position like that's your fault <sighs> and 
I love that he he acknowledges his own shortcomings by praising what made Rosie so great. You're like, I'm sorry about Rosie. You know, she was a good person, an actual good person. That final scene. That scene between them. That's the because like I said, I didn't cry during the reveal of, of Rosie's death or through through that whole sequence just because I was it's too shocking. Yeah, I'm just like, wait, wh- um, I'm sorry, what? But things were like I was kind of settled back into the movie at this point. And when he rips off the jacket and shoves him away, that last shot of him being dragged away and he just smiles as Jojo is brought out. Like, I just, I lost it and just started weeping. But the line he gives to him, you know, go home, Jojo. Go take care of your family. (sighs) Which means him and Elsa. I, like the uh, the extent he'll go to no, no, to keep no, 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 Jojo go, from go home. Look after that sister of yours. Yeah. Even better. And, and the extent that he goes to to keep Jojo from like outing what he's doing. You know, like no, he's and he just, like spits on him and throws him. Like oh my god. It like which so people like that that scene. You both deeply hurt for Jojo while also like in awe of this beautiful man. Mm. It's so good. I guess the last one to talk about would be Jojo, so we should probably mention uh, Yorkie, played by the uh, by many uh, Nick Frost, Archie Yates. Uh, uh, he's, he's so adorable. Like, I'm sorry about your mother. I cried for ages when I found out. I'm like, oh man, what a kid. You're a soldier? At your <laughs> service, but you're only 11. I know. Uh, <laughs> I would have thought that too, but it's paper-like. <laughs> It seems I could never die. <laughs> it's definitely not a good time to be a Nazi. Uh, just, yeah, he is, like, the joy when you realize, oh, he's still alive. He didn't die in that gigantic battle. <laughs> All is good with the world. And the reveal of him being alive, just him and those, like, sleeveless fatigues as he's sitting on the side, like, ah. Oh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and there's Rebel Wilson. Like, I, 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 I loathe Rebel Wilson's persona, but she she is kind of funny in this movie. I've had 18 kids for Germany. <laughs> we, Such a good year to be a woman. We need someone to walk the clones. <laughs> just... I love, like, her taking um, Rosie's joke seriously, and like, and here's the gun. And then she's just, like, completely confused. Like, why yeah. Why was I turned away? I, I did what you asked. Um, yeah, and she dies rather spectacularly. <laughs> Shoot anyone that looks different to us. Um, so we we kind of talked a lot about JoJo, kind of in roundabout ways by talk, you know touching on all the characters that meant something to him. But uh, just Roman Griffin Davis is, is just spectacular. Um, like just child performances, like. He, this level of child performance is just crazy. The fact that he, he he has to anchor this whole movie because like it's it's so anchored in a childlike perspective, like more than almost any other film you've ever seen. So it's all him, and there's so many scenes where it's just the camera right up in his face, and I don't think he falters once. No, he's always amazing. Like you said, this so many of these scenes are just framed around his perspective of it. So so often we're seeing things, and then we're just up with him seeing his reaction like as an actor there's really nothing to hide behind for him and so like I, i'm sure it probably took a lot of takes because you find out about a lot of great child performances you know but i there's too many amazing moments for him to not just get credit for a phenomenal perform. like i I think he's probably my favorite character from any movie that you. Yeah, I, I I don't know like how self aware is like 
I don't know if it's just such amazing directions. Like a little moments like if I saw a Jew, I'd kill it. And he like tries to snap his fingers. <laughs> he can't do it. Like, like, <laughs> like that. In, that, in that moment of saying something horribly evil, also reminding us that he's just a stupid kid. Um, oh, he's, he's got matching pajamas with his mom, which is like one, that's so adorable. Also two, this kid really needs his dad in the home <laughs> to save him from this indignity. Uh, <laughs> then you'll cut off my Nazi head, which also I don't want. So it's a Mexican stalemate. It's just a normal stalemate. <laughs> uh, just like he delivered his, his line delivery on the jokes is just perfect. After the long pause. Ridiculous. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I I wrote down so many quotes from this film because they are all good. Like and the, the jokes are hysterical, but also, uh, but but also just every single other. Like even the jokes are often like have these like profound double meanings. Uh, the, the scene where him and Elsa are comparing Jewish and uh, <laughs> and German celebrities, Houdini. No, that's impossible. No. Believe it, brother. <laughs> Yeah, just the way he portrays is the slow turn from, you know, I hate this woman and want her out of my house to like just every little tiny moment of kindness that he then walks back. Like, but this doesn't mean anything or it's just stealing colored pencils so that she can draw. Um, the whole thing is just so beautifully done. Like, it's the soul of the film. Just watching this, this change happen in a human soul and like the, the power of empathy and just being... Like you, you can bigotry is so hard, so easy to maintain when you're separate from your, your target. But just being forced to live in that in such close proximity and, and every day have what have you know, have another preconception and stereotype or what and and just belief challenged. The fact it just it what his what he believes cannot possibly survive. You know, contact with the enemy, and is just watching that slow process happen. In, in such a powerful and organic way. You mentioned that, that final scene uh, where he lies to Elsa and also where he, where she, he stabs her. I don't know that I've, I'm sure there are plenty of scenes, like that. I don't think I've ever seen um, a scene in a film quite like where he, after he finds um, his mother's body and then goes and stabs her. It's just, it is such an incredible piece of filmmaking. Like the, there's no like big bombastic swelling music. They don't, you know, they don't fall down theatrically to their knees and weep loudly and you know hug in a puddle of tears. It's just, I just wa- wa- watch Elsa's face as he walks toward her with a knife. You know, she looks up, she's happy to see him, and then she sees the knife. And, like just everything is just so wrong about that sequence. Um, but it's also so human. The fact like he for him. Like his mother is dead, and it's all this girl's fault. And he, like, he just tries to let out his pain and stab her, and he can't even do that. And just the, the little pinprick of blood on the end of the knife. And I love that Elsa understands in that moment. She just kind of lets it happen. Yeah, like before she would have tackled him and pro- possibly cut his head off. <laughs> um, but she just sits there and just sits beside him. And this is this feeling of I just like of, of impotence, like this unimaginable pain 
that exists and we can't do anything about it. We just have to sit here in it and experience it. And it's horrible and incredible. And I, yeah, it's good. Good stuff. And like, like going to the lie, it's, a, it's another thing like where it is so horrible and cruel and absolutely selfish and yet completely human and understandable. You have a 10 year old child faced with the prospect of being absolutely who just lost his mother faced with the prospect of being absolutely alone in a world that has just where his entire world has just been destroyed you know his country lost a war they're occupied who knows he has no concept of what the world could be like you know alone and the, the just the existential terror of that thought is horrifying even to me as an adult who lives alone again it's another moment of where he does a horrible, evil thing to another human being, and yet I can't judge it. Yeah. Like, I can't say I would have done differently in that situation as a child. Yeah, just the performances between him and, and, and uh, Thomas and McKenzie. And I love that the instant he does it, he, again, you know, he hates himself and he, he can't go through it. Immediately goes and, you know, writes another quote unquote letter. And I love that the, the final letter, he's not, he didn't even write it down. Yeah. He's just saying it. And um, him, him looking through though, like as he stews and or not, but just as he lives with the what he just said, and he's he's looking through all of the drawings and all the pictures he made. You know, she's there because of this perception of them that he, you know, he bought into is, you know, that's that's what has landed her in this situation, and then you know the him on his him and his mic or him and his mom on their bikes, and and then the the last picture of him in the cage or him as the rabbit in the cage. It's Oh, it's so good. And just that desperate need for companionship. The the scene after he stabs her, where they're just kind of looking out the window and just bombing in the distance, and just talking about his mother. They lay their head on each other's shoulders. Um, is this bizarre, beautiful little relationship? And like they 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 are family by the end of this film because, like, who else is it? They're the only people they know and they they know and love. And the, the final scene where he lets he you know, he lets her go, <laughs> she just slaps him, uh, which is just perfect. Um, and they dance, and I didn't know dancing could be so just emotionally devastating. You just remember, you know, dancing is for people who are free. It's how we show God that we're grateful to be alive. And they're dancing, and. Yeah, I don't really have much I can say to but to add to that. This the way this movie uses these motifs and like recurring ideas, like there there's a thing with the shoes. There there's the you know, just like the idea of doing what you can, like what did they do, what they could, and then when she talks to him, you're like, be you know, be easy on your mother. She's doing what she can. And it ends with him saying, like, you know, Jojo Betzler, ten years old or ten and a half years old, just do what you can. And then the idea of the dancing, you know, she says that and you get an idea that like she's had conversations with uh, with Elsa, and because you know he asked like, "What's the first thing you're gonna do when you're free? Dance." And then we get to the end, and they dance. Like, there's all these ideas that just keep resurfacing. Yeah. What do, what do we do now? Well, we dance because we're free. Yeah, this is this. Everything has been leading to this moment. And then Heroes plays in German, and like, is there a song like crafted by man like better suited to make you cry over the end credits than Heroes? Yeah, I I listened to this like five times on the way uh, home. Just like <laughs> the this, German this version. This is what I'm listening to. 
No, just the the right the English version, oh. but the emotions still translated. Yeah. This may be like the most emotionally affecting scene for me of like the whole year. J- the, especially like watching the movie again and again, like focusing on the character of Elsa and everything that she's been forced to to live through, you know, and like I I feel I feel more for her character every rewatch with the things like hearing the music and them dancing while while we're forced to be up in this, you know, this little like hide a hole. And though this last this there's just something so liberating about that. And you see the slow kind of like slightly start to sway. And I think one of the things that just does it for me is as she's dancing more and you see her kind of look around like there's a, an initial unease to it, like what you're doing you're doing this, you're doing this out in the open after everything she's lived through. She's still, there's almost that fear of this isn't right. Am I allowed to be doing this? And that idea, it's just, it's so heartbreaking. And then nothing happens. And so she, like, it's, they're just dancing more. Well, like it just gets increasingly celebratory till at the end. And, you know, he does a little snap and, and then I'm just cry, like weeping through the credits. Yeah, like the the journey she goes through when we first discover her, it's played like a horror film. And she she has like her face is really gaunt and her hair is all mad and she's wearing like these very ill fitting boys' clothes. And I love it, like completely silently throughout the film, she slowly like takes bits and pieces of uh, his sister's clothing and wears them, like and it kind of adds them to her costume and becoming you know more and more womanly as the film goes. Like it's a really cool touch that I noticed in this last viewing. Yeah. Um, Taika Waititi is wonderful. <laughs> Help me one last time, little man. To put it plainly, get your shit together. <laughs> <laughs> Reverse psychology. Don't overcomplicate things. <laughs> Just use my backwards mind power trick and everything will be fine. <laughs> Don't give her any more knives. <laughs> um, yeah, like every single line delivery is just hilarious. <laughs> Sp- I love- spit- spitting in the soup and kicking the chair on his way up. <laughs> I love it. I love like his introduction or his the first scene we see him after the beginning where Jojo's crying on the wood and he like peeks out from behind the tree and you have that little like Giacchino score start out like the little bells and it's like hey little man like what is this movie? Yeah. All right, I think we've mostly covered the movie. Uh, all right, so I do want to talk about the score because uh, it is wonderful and Michael Giacchino should have gotten a, a, an awards nomination for it and possibly one. Uh so yeah. One thing I don't much like about it is like the tracks are all super short. Like a lot of them are like forty seconds long, which is a little irritating for him, and it feels unusual for Chikino. But man, what it is, what it is, what it is. One interesting thing I noticed is like there's an element of like looseness in how some of the instruments are played. Like they're almost almost played like badly. Like I would say not to the level of like Hans Zimmer and Sherlock Holmes, where it's just like all crazy and wonky. But there's like there's that kind of childish element where just there's a looseness to just to, it's not all precise and perfectly orchestral there's kind of a wildness about it it's also very small like there are very few modes of just big orchestra it's usually just a couple instruments kind of bouncing off each other first you have a jojo's march which is just jojo's main theme which is absolutely wonderful you get like the marching drums and the badly played flutes and whistles it's just this exuberant childhood but it's also kind of militaristic um, you get the uh, the children's chorus, um, kind of, there's like a bit of uh, The Great Escape in there, that kind of march. Um, or to me, uh, the reference, like The Great Escape music I know from Chicken Run uh, with John Powell and Harry Grayson Williams score for that. <laughs> exactly. And there's uh, Adolf Einleitung in Sheik, I think. It's, 
Uh, this is very kind of high tinny flute playing Jojo's theme with a, a guitar of sorts strumming in the background. It, it starts forlorn and then shifts whimsical. Um, let's run into some more tracks. Uh, Grenade and Barrett is these like pounding bongos and drums with uh, Jojo's whistle in the background, like almost being buried by the noise. Um, the, the, the brass comes in, but it's like this really driving drum beat. It's really fun. Uh, a game of names. Uh, it was this really vibrant cello music, kind of like kind of like what you'd imagine like in a Jane Austen adaptation. Then there's a Mother Joker, which is like a, this very sad, wistful, but very sweet uh, take on the JoJo theme, played on a guitar with you know, some piano and um, the, the the one you mentioned, uh, a few of my shiniest things that you mentioned this scene, uh, where it's Elsa's theme. Oh, it's this so like beautiful, horrifyingly haunting and soulful cello music. Um. It's like, just breaks me. Um, and there's a butterfly's wings, which is a Jojo's theme played like on piano in very, it starts in minor key and kind of brightens up as it goes. Um, the kids are all right. It's a, this very mournful boy solo, uh, that, you know, going over a very slow version of a, how, of a, of a Jojo's theme. And like after Lord of the Rings, like whenever I hear like a, a little boy solo, I like just a- almost instantly start crying. <laughs> it's like, it's it's so yep. really powerful. So that, that's the music that plays over the slow motion um your war scene. And I love that That's one of the most just like beautifully haunting track ever. And it's like a response to the happy children's you know, happy militaristic children's choir of the of the you know of the first scene the first moments of the film. Now it's just this you know, this one you know child singing and mournfully in the chaos. Um then uh, what Elsa is new, this is a, again Elsa's theme, this very delicate tentative piano and guitar it's like you know this kind of a, a question with both hope and fear um a world to the wise this very um small twinkly and hopeful jojo's theme is very this is very like a childlike faith and fear um then there's a jojo's theme which is just a suite going through all the various variations of his theme throughout the movie so really like it's very simple it's jojo's theme elsa's theme I, there might be a theme for rosie i don't remember but it's just the, the the different variations he's able to get out of the music. It's all and it, it's so simple. There's so few instruments like these flutes and whistles and you know piano and guitar. Like there's just, there's so little orchestration. It's very simple. It's just beautiful and childish and just wonderful. Yeah, this not being nominated really hurts. It's so I I really like being able to take themes and just craft different moods around the same mm-hmm. notes. And I, I, the theme just feels so much a part of the movie's identity. Like sometimes, like the scene often will introduce or like be introduced with new characters. It's just it's walking hand in hand with it, and I wish it was acknowledged. Yeah. All right. So finally, uh, we'll give a uh, our star rating for, for this film and our closing thoughts. Uh, James, what are your closing thoughts, and uh, what do you give this film out of five stars? Uh, this is a five out of five for me. This is like genuinely one of my new favorite movies. Uh, like I loved it enough to watch it once in the theater and then three times the first week it came out uh and like the idea of watching it again doesn't like even sound like a bad thing um uh, just to summarize everything we've already said like i there's so much about this that i love i love his style i love i love the creative and fun editing i love what despite you know like we, we have a scene of hitler eating a unicorn head like this <laughs> amidst all of this ridiculousness there's a level of maturity in how it handles this like how it handles the relationships how it handles its message there's just a lot of thought 
behind all of it. And I think this is just really smart satire. The characters are fantastic. I, I genuinely love all of the people here. I think everybody's giving amazing performances. It's just like you poke the movie from from any angle and everything to me just holds up. What she said. Uh, yeah, it, it's like I love I, I've talked about this before. I love movies that kind of give me everything. And this is one of those movies where it's this beautiful drama. It's also hilarious. And I'm laughing every, you know, every minute. And it gives me the, you know, gives me the feel, these like rare, delicate, raw human emotions that you get from indie dramas while also just being, you know, a genuine crowd, you know, quote unquote crowd pleaser. You know, it, it, it makes you, it takes you everywhere that the, the human emotions can go. It takes you there. I um, mean, you know, for the, some of the most heartbreaking images I've ever seen in film to just some of the most joyous moments I can imagine. And, and it, it just ends on this beautiful, bittersweet note. Um, and, and just as you mentioned, the satire is so sharp. It, the, the humor is great. Just as a fan of filmmaking, I'm kind of in awe of the technical craft on display, the performances, everything. Just there's not there, There's just nothing wrong with this movie. And every time you watch it, you'll come away noticing something beautiful and feeling something else. So yeah, it's a five star film for me as well. And um, also, how does it rank in 2019 for you? Like for me, after the second view, it just went to the top and stayed there for the rest of the year. Uh, it was number three for me. Uh, so what, what what do you have above it? Uh, number one for me is Parasite, and then uh, this little movie that might divide us. I got number two as The Irishman. Oh, okay. So that was our review of Jojo Rabbit. I hope you enjoyed it. And again, if you did, I'd ask you to please uh, take a moment to go over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Uh, if you want to follow us on Facebook, um, if you want to like us on Facebook, we're there as Franchise Week Podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, we're on both of those sites as at FranchisedPod. And if you want to find another episode, you can go to FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. And where can people follow you, James? Follow me on Letterboxd. I am there as JL Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. Uh, and you can also join uh, both of us over on Facebook at The Outer Rim, a Star Wars group. Um, we are still in the middle of this final season of The Clone Wars. So if you love Star Wars, if you love all things Star Wars and you want to talk about it positively, definitely feel free to join us over there for a great discussion. I'm also on Letterboxd, and there's Gabriel Green. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green, and I have a YouTube channel called Greenery01, where I put up these uh, film-based music videos. All right, so uh, next week, uh, we're going back to the world of franchise films, or in this case, TV shows, uh, with all of the Star Wars stuff that's been coming out over the last year, starting with The Mandalorian, uh, which we'll actually be breaking up into two episodes to make it more manageable. So next week's going to be the first four episodes of The Mandalorian, and then we'll have another episode with the, with the uh, next four episodes. So until next week, we will see you in the sequel. Jojo Bessler, ten and a half years old. Today, just do what you can. Mm-hmm.